Thank you for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We're currently in a sermon series on the biblical book of Leviticus. Now, this is a book that's been described as weird, gross, and backward. And the fact is that there's a lot of stuff going on in Leviticus that's strange to us today, which is all the more reason for us to study it. Because when we get below the surface, we're going to find God's beating heart of love for you and for me. If you need anything at all, please reach out to us at tablechurchdsm.org. Be sure to come worship with us Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Community Playhouse in Des Moines, Iowa. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. Our scripture today is from Leviticus chapter 11, verses 29 through 34. Of the animals that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. The weasel, the rat, any kind of great lizard, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the wall lizard, the skink, and the chameleon. Of all those that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. Whoever touches them when they are dead will be unclean till evening. When one of them dies and falls on something, that article, whatever its use, will be unclean, whether it is made of wood, cloth, hide, or sackcloth. Put it in water. It will be unclean till evening, and then it will be clean. If one of them falls into a clay pot, everything in it will be unclean, and you must break the pot. Any food you are allowed to eat that has come into contact with water from any such pot is unclean, and any liquid that is drunk from such a pot is unclean. That text preaches itself, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I was saying in the first service that um, this is the first time, in this Leviticus series so far, I've been the one to read all the texts, but then I saw Cheryl was on for this week and I thought she can handle it. So thank you, Cheryl. Yeah, so um, we'll get into that in just a moment. But I want to mention something in addition to the stuff that uh, Megan shared with you. We've got a lot going on this fall. There's stuff that we didn't even put on the handout that's going on too. Um, we're still firming up some dates on a few things. You'll be hearing more about that. But please, just be, be aware of where you can plug in. Get plugged in if you're not. We'd love to have you join a group or a class or join us on one of the service projects we're going to do. Uh, but today, there's, an also, there's actually another opportunity to serve today. Tonight at 7 o'clock, all across the metro and beyond throughout Iowa, uh, there's going to be prayer happening at public schools. It's called Inspire Our Schools, and it's an organization that's committed to seeing our schools prayed for. And so tonight at 7 o'clock, I will be leading the prayer at Hubble Elementary. Uh, you're invited to come join me and pray. Um, it won't take too long. And then also at 7 o'clock, Jamie Sosnowski is going to be leading the prayer at Merrill Middle School. And maybe you have a school near you, uh, there's a good chance that there will be prayer happening at that school. So if you go to the Inspire Our Schools website, uh, you can see a list of all the schools that are participating. Uh, It's just about all the Des Moines schools and I think the suburbs as well. And so maybe tonight you want to get out and go pray over some schools. That would be amazing. We want to just bless the administrators, the teachers, and the students uh, as we start school in, what, three days, right? Yeah, we're my teachers. Here we go. Awesome. (laughs) Parents are like, yes. 
So today we get to talk about, you may have just noticed, we get to talk about some of the weirdest parts of the Bible. And I'm so excited. Your pastor, I don't know if you know this, I have a thing for really difficult texts. I just enjoy them. I love digging into them and seeing what there is to be found in them. Um, And so this isn't a surprise. We're studying Leviticus after all. But today we're going to look at these things that we call purity laws. Now, up until this point, we have been talking about sacrificial laws. But somewhere, I think around chapter 10 of Leviticus, it kind of changes the focus and starts talking about purity laws. This is different than the sacrificial law. Now, the sacrificial language, a lot of times we Christians can kind of get a handle on that stuff because we talk about Jesus being our sacrifice a lot. And so there's a little bit of a sense where we have some language to kind of, I don't know, correspond maybe what was happening uh, with the sacrifices in the tabernacle to what we understand of Jesus, even though there's still a lot of mystery there as far as what exactly it means to be a sacrifice. But the last couple of weeks we were talking about that. And so today we're going to switch gears and we're going to talk about purity laws and purity rituals. Because the fact is, once you hit the purity laws, that's really where the wheels start to fall off the train for us. We're just like, what is happening here? What is this about? What does this mean? Why, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem very nice. Why is that person unclean for that? You know, like all these things happen. It makes no sense why animals that chew the cud are clean for us to eat, but animals that don't chew the cud, like pigs, are not clean. Chewing the cud, by the way, that's where an animal swallows their food, regurgitates it, and chews it again. Those animals are good to eat. I think cows are one of those. So you can eat those. It's hard for us to see why we can eat fish with scales, but we can't eat fish with no scales. And of course we question why would it be that a woman who just had a baby or is menstruating is considered unclean. That doesn't seem right, does it? Now, it might be easier for us to understand why touching a dead body would make you unclean, but it doesn't seem fair that it would apply to other diseases like leprosy. Why would a person with a skin disease be unclean? Lucky for me, Leviticus is sure to clarify that bald men are clean. (laughs) You don't go unclean just because you lose your hair. It's good news. So these are some of, I think, the most bizarre, I want to use my language carefully, but I don't want to like, you know, denigrate the Bible, but let's be honest. To us today, we read this and we're like, this does not make sense. What is happening here? But as we've seen so far, if we can dig in and see what's going on, a lot of times we find something powerful to apply to us today. I think that's true as well for the purity laws. So the passage that we read today, by the way, um, this is just one of many I could have chosen about purity laws. Um, I chose that one because it talks about lizards, and I like lizards. I was like, let's go with the geckos and stuff. Um, But there's a lot of things I could have picked for today's text. I'm not going to necessarily dig into that particular passage much. I'm going to rather give us an overview of the purity laws in general. That was just one sampling of what you might encounter in them. And so as I do that, I want to lay some ground rules for how to read these purity laws of Leviticus. Uh, I've got four rules for us to keep in mind as we read these and study them. Rule number one, God often changes a culture first by working through that culture. What I mean is that God often works with the lenses that culture already has in place, the worldviews, the understandings of the world that the culture already has in place. He works through those in order to communicate some deeper truth to them. 
For example, pigs in the ancient world were often associated with pagan deities and with the underworld, that sort of thing. God doesn't correct that understanding. He doesn't come along and say, oh, no, no, pigs, those, those deities that you're talking about, they're not even real. Pigs have nothing to do with the underworld. You're good. Pigs are great. God doesn't do that. He works with this understanding of pigs they have in order to teach them a deeper truth. We're going to come back to that here a little bit. But what this means is that we shouldn't dismiss parts of the Bible out of hand simply because they sound strange to us. Chances are there's something important for us to learn, something happening below the surface. If we peel back some of those cultural layers, we'll see it. In fact, here's what I would say. When reading the Bible, you must, you must strive to understand the text as the original audience would have understood the text. Often, it's there that we can understand the true principle that we're trying to get at. So Leviticus has a ton of stuff in it that had cultural significance to them then that doesn't have the significance to us now. Um, some of the stuff in Leviticus may always be a mystery to us. We may never really understand why it is that people couldn't wear you know, clothing with multiple fibers in it, different kinds of thread and fabric. Um, we're not sure. You know, There's some theories, but we may never know exactly why that's the case. Uh, but we can get a good idea on what a lot of it meant, and I think a pretty good idea on what the overarching point of these purity laws were. And then we can transfer the deeper principle to our lives today. Okay, that's rule number one. Rule number two, this is important. Unclean does not equal sinful. Unclean does not equal sinful. Think of a Venn diagram for me, if you will. So you've got one circle that says sin, one circle that's unclean. As you notice, there is some overlap there, but there's a whole lot of space, a lot of territory where you can be unclean but not having sinned or having sin but not having unclean. I'm not sure if it works that way as well. But um, there's all sorts of examples of things where, um, you know, you might be unclean but you hadn't sinned. Now, uh, for example, let's see here. Um, for example, uh, it is, <laughs> it's not sinful for a man to have, a bald man to have a sore on his head. Uh, but it does make him unclean, apparently. It's not sinful for a woman to have a baby, but it does make her unclean. But it's important to remember, unclean is not necessarily a moral designation. Now, sometimes you can be both sinful and unclean, as you see in the diagram. For example, if you kill somebody, uh, you just sinned, and now you're unclean because it's, you can't touch a dead carcass and remain clean. All right? So uh, unclean is not necessarily a moral designation. doesn't necessarily mean sin. Rule number three. Uh, so what is clean and unclean after all? It's this. Clean is associated with life. Unclean is associated with death. We have another picture here. Imagine there's a spectrum, and on one end of it is life, and the other end of it is death. So God is on the life end, and death is on the unclean end. God is on the clean end, and death is on the unclean end. Of course, clean is associated with life. Unclean is associated with with death. So the closer that you move to life, the closer you move to God. The closer you move towards the unclean end, the closer you're moving to death. So what this means is that the reason that touching a dead carcass makes you unclean is not because it's sinful to do that, but because in the minds of the ancient person, remember rule number one, you were just contaminated with death. It's like when you touch it, now there's like death's residue is on you. You have become unclean. 
The reason that bleeding makes you unclean is not because it's sinful to get hurt. It's not sinful to scrape your knee. It's because they believed that the life, remember last week we learned this, the life is in the blood. The soul is in the blood. So if you've lost some blood, you've lost a little bit of life. You've just moved a few clicks down the spectrum towards unclean. The reason you don't eat sea creatures without scales or fins is because in the view of the ancient person, this wasn't a complete fish. It wasn't full. It wasn't whole, if you will. And therefore, it was more associated with that end of the spectrum than with that end. Pigs. We already talked about pigs. They were associated with the pagan underworld, the realm of the dead. So you don't eat pigs because they have this, I don't know, residue of death about them, an aura of death about them because of their association with the underworld. Leprosy destroys the body. It decays the skin and the body. So lepers were unclean because of that. And so I understand that we, we read it and we think, well, it just doesn't seem unfair that certain people would be unclean, that kind of thing. But remember, rule number one, God works through the lenses of the culture in order to communicate things often before changing the culture over time. And so what happens is that... Um, they would have already assumed many of these things, that you know, a leper was unclean or something like that. What God does is he shows you how to be made clean. He gives these laws. If a dead gecko falls onto your clay pot or onto your shirt, here's what you do. You put your shirt in the water until evening. They didn't think germs were being washed off of it. They thought death was being washed off of it. And so God is giving them in his kindness, he's giving them these ways to be made clean. Rule number four, last rule. Life obliterates death in its residue, and God is pure life. Now remember, clean equals life. That's the God end of the spectrum. Well, life obliterates death and its residue, and God is pure life. Um, so something that's true of Leviticus, not just Leviticus, but the whole Bible, is that the great enemy of God in the Bible is not Satan and is not sin. The great enemy is death. Now, sin causes death. Satan is like an ambassador for death. But death is the ultimate enemy. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is the great enemy of God. I think of it like this. Sometimes at the store you can buy things in concentrate, like orange juice or like vanilla and stuff. Um, this is just... You, know, you wouldn't just you know, down the concentrate, right? You have to dilute it somehow. Well, in Leviticus, God is like life concentrate, like pure, unadulterated life. So if you stroll into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and you've, you're unclean, you have the residue of death on you, you're going to get zapped because life obliterates death. God is pure, unadulterated life, and life defeats death like Caesar's Beast paper. This is what happens in Leviticus 10 when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, uh, they walk into the Holy of Holies. It says that they offer strange fire. We're not entirely sure what that strange fire means, but whatever it was, it meant that they were unclean. They don't make it out of the tabernacle. They brought death into the realm of life, and life always wins. So this is why Israel needs these purity laws, so they can be made clean to enter the presence of pure life. Now, I think this is where studying the Bible gets really exciting because you can take what we've just learned about Leviticus and we can read the Gospels in the New Testament, read about the life of Jesus, and we can start to notice some pretty cool things. 
For example, there's a story in Mark chapter 5. A woman has been bleeding for years. So that makes her unclean, right? Also, it means nobody can touch her or else they will become ceremonially unclean as well. Because remember, loss of blood equals loss of life. That moves you a few clicks down towards the death end of the spectrum, if you will. But this woman thinks, well, okay, if I can just touch the hem of Jesus' clothes, I'll be healed. And so she reaches out in a crowd and she touches the hem of his garment and boom, she's healed. Now notice two things that if we're you know, an ancient person reading this story, two things happen that are surprising. Not just the miraculous healing. Something else happens here that would have probably raised our eyebrows a bit, and it's the fact that Jesus is not contaminated. Jesus is not made unclean even though she touches him. Why is that? It's because Mark is showing us that Jesus is like this radioactive center of pure life. Death cannot stand in his presence. When, you, when, when death approaches Jesus, it bounces off of him like a BB gun against a grizzly bear. Like, it cannot penetrate Jesus. This happens in other places in the Gospels. Immediately after this moment, in fact, Jesus literally takes the hand of a dead girl. And he's not made unclean. In fact, the opposite happens. Death does not come on to Jesus. The opposite happens. Life is pushed out of Jesus onto the dead girl, and she's raised to life. He's like this pulsating force of life. Another time, Jesus just stands outside the tomb of Lazarus, who's been dead for days, and he just yells into the tomb, and Lazarus comes out fully alive. Like Death cannot stand in the presence of Jesus. Jesus is this, this pulsating, contagious, radioactive life source. It's like an atomic bomb of life. If you've seen the movie Captain Marvel, uh, you'll remember, she's like pretty powerful, you know, but then there's a point in the movie where she realizes the bad guys put a governor on her, like capping her power, and then she takes it off and she's like this cosmic force of power flying around in space. That's like the movement from the tabernacle to Jesus. Jesus is this cosmic force of life-giving power to the point that even death couldn't keep him down. Like he pushes death off and comes raised back to life by God. So the Bible is the story from at least Genesis chapter 3 on is the story of God pushing back the forces of death. That's what we see happening in these purity laws. When we peel away the cultural layers like we learned in rule number one and we get to the deeper principle in Leviticus, here's what we discover. In Leviticus God is calling us to bring life to a world polluted with death. This is the mission of the people of God. Like We don't think pigs are unclean. God didn't correct that misunderstanding about pigs for thousands of years until the book of Acts, by the way. He's working through that. But he still communicated the deeper principle that I am a God of life. You are not to be associated with death. Now, Jesus' life-giving power is transferred from him to his followers. We see this. The apostles, they do all the same stuff that Jesus did. They, they touch unclean people. They raise the dead to life. And they share the gospel, which brings eternal life. Jesus' followers are called to bring life. The problem is we live in a culture that I think the enemy has done a terrific job of making death seem sensible. Making death seem sensible. And so I wonder if we could just like take 
a little bit of this, um, I don't know what the word would be, this passion, this abhorrence towards death that we encounter in Leviticus and apply it to our lives and see how can we be people that drive back the forces of death? How can we as a church become just like Jesus, a pulsating radioactive center of life? The New York Times published an article about a website where members from, they, they, they form a community where they support one another toward their own suicides. Because in their minds, even your own life is under the domain of personal choice. Do you remember what we learned in our Foolish Things series? I talked a lot about culture today and how it's been coined the age of authenticity. And, and one, of the, um, one of the facets that we often see in the age of authenticity, which, what is the age of authenticity? It's this idea that in order to live a true, full, whole, happy life, I need to be authentic, which means I need to live out my internal impulses and desires. That's kind of what the good life looks like in today's world. And one of the facets of this is what's called expressive individualism. And it's the value that we generally share now in late modernity in the West that says, well, uh, every individual should express what's inside of them. This is a great thing. I don't want to sound like I'm saying it's not. It's wonderful. I'd rather live now than any other time, you know what I'm saying? But um, it doesn't necessarily always mean good things. And sometimes when taken to its logical conclusion and when stripped of any sort of a transcendent anchor, it can go off the rails. And what we're seeing here is like, or even my own life, like whether or not to keep it going is an area that is under the domain of expressive individualism. So I just, you know, I'm just being my authentic self by committing suicide. It's just the way that we've, it's just the logical endpoint of this life or this philosophy that we live now. The atheist Richard Dawkins, he once tweeted famously to a woman who was wondering what to do if she became pregnant with a baby with Down syndrome. And he simply said, abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you had a chance, a choice. Like these, these are extreme examples, I know, but I think they're the logical endpoint of the philosophy that we see in a late modern culture that has no place to anchor the value of life. No transcendent place to anchor it. It's the logical conclusion of a rationality that, that worships autonomous personal choice but has no transcendent anchor for the value of life. There's a word for this. It's nihilism. So that's a fancy way of saying we live in a culture of death. The 20th century was the rise of phenomenal modern innovation and progress. It's also the century where we've killed each other at a rate that was previously unfathomable. It's our mission to bring life, and that mission has never been more urgent for the church. The Bible describes this as the mission of the devil. It says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. So it says we're supposed to resist him, which suggests that, that the enemy has, is active, isn't just passive, you know? Like if you're just standing there staring at me, uh, I don't have to do anything. But if you come at me and try to take my lunch, I have to resist you or just give you my lunch, which might be the Jesus way, right? Like one or the other, like the enemy is not passive, 
Resistance requires energy. So there's this active force of death in the world that is trying to influence our minds. It's trying to bend our wills toward it. And Peter in this verse is saying you have to resist it. You have to put in effort to resist its advances. In Harry Potter, there's these creepy things called dementors. And when a dementor gets close to you, like you feel all the joy being sucked out of you, all the happiness being drained from you. There's this active force at work in a dementor. There's only one way to resist a dementor. You have to use the spell called, and the spell is expecto patronum. I expect a protector in Latin. And when you do it correctly, a bright figure appears and chases away the dementors. The problem is that in order to make a Patronus, you have to conjure up a happy memory. And that's really hard when you've got the joy being sucked out of you. And so there's this moment where Harry is in trouble and it looks like the Dementors might get him when suddenly out of nowhere, somebody else conjures this brilliant Patronus and it comes and chases away the Dementors. And Harry, of course, assumes somebody else did it, but later in the story, he has the opportunity to go back in time and actually observe this scene from outside. And he's watching himself get attacked by Dementors and he's thinking, okay, this person will come at any moment when suddenly it hits him. It wasn't somebody else. It was me. Now, up to this point, Harry hasn't been able to produce a very good Patronus. But in that moment, he steps up and he just does it. Why? He knows he can do it because it's already been done. And that's the Christian hope. We can resist death. How do we know? Because it's already been done. Jesus has defeated death. Paul writes that we are coming to a time where we will say death is swallowed up in victory. The devil tries to make death seem sensible, and he's done a very good job today. Across the political spectrum, left and right, we have incredible maneuvers to, to justify death in staggering quantities, don't we? He's made it seem sensible. We've lost the sense of like horror that every life that God made being snuffed out. Not much has changed since the Garden of Eden. The serpent essentially says, do the sensible thing. You will not surely die, he says. But you notice what he did there. He leverages self-interest and obscures the reality of death, which we see happening over and over again in our culture. Self-interest being leveraged and the reality of death being out of sight and out of mind. Of course, the serpent was dead wrong. The choice led directly to death. And in the same way, so much of our late modern idea of what's reasonable, I'd argue, has led us to obscure what's really happening. So how do we live out the purity laws today? I'd say this. Wherever people are kept from flourishing, we see the pollution of death. Now, obviously, like things like war and genocide and stuff like that, those are obvious examples. But there's more subtle ones, too. There's children who live below the poverty line, who, children who are unable to li- uh, work in school. And Leviticus shows us that God cares about that too. That's a, that's a life issue for God. Wherever people are kept from flourishing, we see the pollution of death. God calls us to bring life to a world polluted with death. So we, we fight the pollution of death anytime we bring light into the darkness. And it can be as simple as offering a gentle word to somebody battling depression, to sit and pray with someone to tutor a student, encourage the teachers at a school like what we've been trying to do. Our call is to be like Jesus, 
for us to be a church where when, we're, when a church is in the community, we become this pulsating radioactive atomic bomb of life that spreads out and multiplies. Anybody who comes near it can tell there's something different. Now, some of us in our discipleship to Jesus, we need to re- deprogram ourselves from the culture of death. We need to be reprogrammed into the kingdom of life. We have to be deprogrammed from some of the ways that the enemy has rationalized death in our minds. And to be real and honest, this can happen, like I said, any end of the political spectrum. It can be in regard to life in the womb. It can be in regard to the lives of refugees. It could be in regard to the lives of people on death row. If what we say is true about life being made in the image of God, then there's no price tag you can put on it. A few um, weeks ago, Megan preached three weeks ago now, July 31st. I think it was the end of our First Things or Foolish Things series. And um, so she had this pyramid. By the way, if you didn't hear that sermon, you have to go back on the podcast and listen to it. I'm invoking pastoral authority here. If that's real, I'm emptying the bank account. Go listen to this this sermon. It's wonderful. And while you're at it, listen to Kelly's too. They were both incredible. I was in Zambia. Um, So she had this pyramid that I think is an important illustration. I'll just read it to you because it might be too small. But on the bottom level of the pyramid, this is people who are adjacent to Jesus but not attached to him yet. These are people who may be curious about God, but they haven't like made that step of becoming a Jesus follower. And so they still operate as the world does. They still have the world's operating system, if you will. But then the second level, these are people who are attached to Jesus. They've made the decision to follow Jesus, but they still have kind of the world's OS, the world's operating system at work in their minds and hearts. And so they need to be deprogrammed a little bit. This is just modern ways of explaining what discipleship is. And I think that this is a really big category. I think there's a lot of Christians. In fact, maybe you can make the case that we're all here to some degree There's some way in which maybe even subconsciously we're still adhering to the ways of the world rather than the ways of the kingdom. And so this is the hard, nitty-gritty, dirty, sometimes painful, sometimes uncomfortable work of discipleship, of exposing our hearts to God or to our discipler or to the community and and saying, hey, is there some place in this that I'm not following Jesus, that I don't have the ethics of the kingdom in mind? And sometimes it touches on stuff that's like really personal, you know, things that we're really passionate about. It's like, ah, but, oh, I've been, I've been deceived. The serpent did his thing again. There's grace for that, by the way. And then there's the top end of the pyramid. These are people who are not only attached to Jesus, but they have the kingdom OS, the kingdom operating system. They have not only decided to follow Jesus, but they've been discipled into the ways of the kingdom of God. And so then now they see things through the lens of a Jesus follower. And what that means is that as they go through life, they see all sorts of beauty and goodness and truth and wholeness and all that stuff. And when they see that, they, they applaud it. It doesn't matter who's doing it or where it comes from. They, think, they say, I'm with that. But then they see all sorts of the other stuff. They see all sorts of ways that the pollution and the stain of death has crept into things, into lives, into communities. And they work to fight it. But here's the thing. Sometimes the world gets it backwards, right? Sometimes they get them upside down, and that puts us in an uncomfortable position of calling it out, if not calling it out, of at least working the opposite direction, of going against the grain or swimming upstream sometimes. 
This is the incredibly, I don't know, difficult, but also kind of exciting journey of discernment in life with God. See, the great irony of the modern age is that we've become very good at rationalizing death while at the same time convincing ourselves that we're more against it than our ancestors were. I'm not convinced that that's necessarily the case. Leviticus has something to teach us in its insistence on life. Its insistence on life. That's how a weird passage about lizards can teach us how to change the world. Listen, death cannot stand in the presence of God. What does it say in Revelation chapter 21, 22? It describes what the new kingdom will look like, heaven on earth, the new Jerusalem. It says, there will be no more crying tears or death. There will be no more dying there, it says. Because in the end, life wins. Last week I talked about a book club with... Uh, we're going to go through a book called Pursuing God by A.W. Tozer. Just I think pairs well with some of the things I've been saying in this series. If you would like to join us, it'll be Sundays at 6 o'clock starting September 11th for four weeks, although it'll take five weeks because we're going to take one week off. I'll explain that to the group when we get there. But if you'd like to join us, go through this classic work. It's less than 100 pages long. It's not very long. It's, it's inspiring, and hopefully it'll kind of push us into, I don't know, well, pursuing God more. Uh, just write the word pursuit on your connection card and and I'll get in touch with you, and you can join us. And we're just going to pray and say, hey, God, search me, you know. What's the area in which I've grown apathetic towards God? And then finally, here's a practice for you. Pray that God would show you someone who needs life breathed into them today. And when he does, tell them about that radioactive center of life named Jesus. Let's pray. You are a God of life. Lord, there are numerous ways in which I partner with death that I'm not even aware of, I'm sure. Forgive me. Change me. Heal me. Cleanse me. God, may this church be a church that works the opposite direction, that brings life in fuller measure to our community and to the people in it. We pray all these things in your name.